Hey listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up to date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. This is The Run Through with Vogue. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. Today, we go to Paris to speak with Simon Porjacamus. I actually went to Paris to speak with him. If you don't know him, you should. He's a delightful young designer who makes very large straw hats and very tiny purses. <laughs> and he has a new show next week in Paris. And we speak with Chelsea Manning about her new book, Her Life After Prison, and of course, her love of fashion. But first, this week's headline. Chama, you might think there's only one big drop uh, today being our episode of The Run-Through. But in fact, there's another moment that people are talking about, which is... Let me guess. Harry and Meghan. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Their Netflix documentary is finally streaming. And people have been having a field day uh, with the trailer all week. Ooh, the trailer is, it's rough. I, I, Let's unpack it. At this moment in my life and my cultural awareness, I'm like, get out of here. Enough. We are done. Right. So we have many royal enthusiasts on our team, but we have one in particular who is a freelancer, Michelle Ruiz, who's written many great pieces and has been watching the royals for pretty much her entire life. She's American. And even for her, this feels like overkill. Interesting. Yeah, she wrote a piece about whether whether this is a documentary we actually want mm-hmm. or need. And I can see, you know, I mean, I can see the appeal. I think, you know, from watching the trailer, and if you've been under a rock and haven't seen it, basically, it is like a highlight reel of their relationship. Um, well, it's a lot of... Um, like close-up shots of Megan, like <sighs> sort of grabbing, gripping her head in this like agony. There and- are some high, there were some funner moments than that. There is a picture of her pregnant, and you know, there. Let were, me tell you, that ain't fun. There, were, but, I okay. love the the photo booth photos of them kissing. Like there are some tender moments. Mm-hmm. It goes high low. I mean, it's like pleasure pa- pain. Like we go, we we we. It's the full scope of emotions. All right, but it's their interior life, which I think for a lot of people makes it and especially you know talking to Michelle who wrote the story you know she thinks that that is a bridge too far that the whole point of the royal family is that there should be some intrigue some mystery and it's something that you know Prince Charles and Princess Diana wouldn't have probably agreed to or done or well, well that's I a just different watched scenario. the crown <laughs> episode where she does the Martin Bashir interview right. and it's has real shades of that. I mean, right. this is not Guy Fox Day, but let's it it's it's close to a sort of a bomb detonation. And right. I'm but also I think people took some issue with some of their claims or the suggestions of the trailer. Like right. like any good journalist, I get my news from the New York Post. And uh, <laughs> the post was pointing out that in one of the sort of uh, voiceovers of Harry talking about how besieged they've been by the press and how harassed one of the images used was a photo of them on their visit to um, Desmond Tutu, and that had been an approved photo. And so why are they using that? They're manipulating the narrative, which 
fine. I mean, I do feel like Megan is so hyper on message and so, so rehearsed that it just, there's nothing fun about it. Right. For me, what really offends me or what I find tricky is we pick a trailer that is essentially one minute and 15 seconds long, right? How many articles did you see Yeah. in the tabloids? It is dissected to the point where you're just like, can we just chill for a second? Literally, I saw a caption on one of the Daily Mail stories that was picking apart the fact that there was an Hermes blanket in the back of one of those crying images. Apparently those are sold out. That just shows you the power this couple has or the influence that Megan has. And I understand that everyone's saying, oh, yeah, she's on messages on this. And, you know, and there was there there were there's been, the, you know, I mean, the, it's been fodder for talk for morning talk shows in the UK for days. And it was interesting because I was watching this one clip and the hosts were basically saying, do we feel that this documentary will actually reveal the moment that things turned mm. right? Went sour because interesting. The, there was kind of this this sense of hope when Megan joined the Ralph right. royal family, but it quickly turned. Right. And it's kind of still a mystery to everyone what exactly went down. Okay. And I do think if this docu-series reveals anything, if it reveals that, then I think there'll be something to it. Because even the Oprah interview, I didn't really get a sense of like, at what point did things right. go wrong? Because they didn't, they weren't always wrong. Right. You know, even though things were kind of set up in a terrible way. Right. And let's not forget that the, you know, what happened last week at Buckingham Palace where, you know, um, a member of the royal family, you know, made these hugely racist comments to a British woman. Yeah. Not just any lady in waiting. She is Prince William's godmother. And a subject of one of the recent Crown episodes. Her husband was the chairman of the BBC during the Bashir interview. This is all coming full circle. (laughs) If she still hasn't got the memo that racism is not okay, then there's still issues there. I can see all the things, but I do think we can't forget that. Yeah. You know, and I'm a bit bored of Meghan and Harry at this point. I'm, but I, I'm if a you bit have bored to come them. down, yes or no, are you pro or con? No, Meghan? I'm not allowed. That's not fair. That is fair. No. It's not that straightforward. I I go I go back and forth. I think All after right. the Oprah interview, there were parts of it that turned me off, but then parts of me thought, oh, you know, I don't and, and I you know I don't know. I had TBD. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I, I go back and forth too. My biggest, not my biggest, but one concern for them is I don't know if her brand of like plucky optimist female empowerment is really relevant anymore. I feel like her message and her this brand that she's building is very 2012, 2013. It's sort of like the TIG grows up, which was her sort of lifestyle blog. And I like you listen to her podcast and it's like, okay, like it's this just like women supporting women. It just doesn't feel very complex or updated and and maybe that's why they're doing this docuseries because i think they understand that this is what the people want people do want to see as much of their interior lives as they can and this is basically blowing open the gates to their romance and they it's a fairy tale story you know i mean everything about her she she just was the most unlikely match for a prince like what is the next step because this is basically now they're showing all the cards. We know He's what the got... next step is. January oh, 10th. Okay, now they're out. So it's is like... the is the is the is the book, right? The spare, spare comes out. Spare comes out. And then there's nothing left. <laughs> I mean, they have Archwell, but let me tell you, Archwell yeah. is not well. I do feel like the only audience they have left is the US. Yeah, I it feel is. like the 
elite media obsessed Americans are really the only sweet spot that will still come calling and, and care about them. And they've been smart to cater to that demographic. The British press are just done. I mean, the British press have never treated them very well. No, that's true. So the future I, is is unclear. Yes, but they they're definitely they've broken the internet twice with with one point fifteen minute thing. I'm just I'm sort of ready to be done. Like, wake me up when the nude leaks. <laughs> so speaking of the Brits, Choma, tell me about the British Fashion Awards because I actually have no idea who won any awards. I just looked at the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's always about the red carpet. Yeah. Okay. What were? Tell <laughs> so me. So let's your best just talk dress. about the dresses. I thought Kristen McManamy. Yes, I like that too. Yeah. So basically, you know, Valentino pink has been the color, right, for the past, for the past, you know, two seasons. They're really elevating Barbie core into yes, a different realm. Exactly. It is exactly that shade of pink. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was tired of it. But then, you know, Kristen comes, changed your mind. Yeah, out comes Kristen McManamy. You know what did it for me? Yes. So her dress was this long, you know, um, kind of cape-like, Maybe fi, like silk fi. Right. You couldn't tell what it was. Exactly. But, yeah. but it, it was kind of studded with um, feathers. Yeah. And what really made it for me was that she had feathered pink um, The eyelashes were eyelashes. incredible. She looked like so it was a sort of best twiggy beauty on acid. Of the night. It was like, exactly. It was twiggy on acid. Um, I think twiggy was on acid. <laughs> Rumor has it. But... Um, <laughs> And then she had these sort of long, you know, she has this incredible long mane of, of white hair. Yeah. And she had it partially braided. And it was just. It was a full divine. look. It was a full look. No, I, I agree. For me, like the ones people who really went for it were the most fun of the yeah. night. Like Erin O'Connor and her like uh, Las Meninas sort of black <laughs> morning veil over her erdem. It was very cool. Right. What did you think of um Tilda Swinton, she wore... I don't know that designer, Charles Jeffrey Loverboy. Right, so Charles Jeffrey Loverboy, I actually I actually happen to own some of his clothing. Okay. He, Is you that probably... name on his birth certificate, or do we think that's an evolution? Uh, that's a good question. I'll okay. get back to you on that. Okay. Um, I love, I really love his brand. You love Loverboy? I love Loverboy. Okay. The reason that you may not have heard of it is because he usually shows on the menswear schedule. Oh, So he's known as a menswear designer, but his... He's just got this terrific punk energy. Okay. And I just thought it was, I mean, Tilda plus Charles Jeffrey Loverboy is just a perfect kind of story. For people who did not happen to see Tilda in Loverboy, it was um, a jacket over a dress, but with sort of Picasso-esque abstract sort of faces drawn on to it. Yeah, and what was nice that it was that under underneath it she wore this he uses a lot of he uses a lot of tartans and mm-hmm. and and checks and and plaids. Is Tilda Scottish? Exactly. Okay. She's so yeah. So that I thought it was a nice nod to her like okay. Scottish roots. All right. Choma liked Tilda and Loverboy. I liked a different dress this week that Choma's making a face <laughs> like I just farted in the studio. Uh Julia Roberts to the Kennedy Center Awards, which was honoring uh, George Clooney. Choma, by the way, is still making the face. Her, her She is not easy. She's going to need to use a lot of retinol tonight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Julia Roberts wore to honor George Clooney a Moschino dress that Jeremy Scott made for her with <laughs> frames of George Clooney's face all over the dress. Of course it's bad, but it's funny. I'm so sick of everyone taking themselves so seriously. I just... I just 
Maybe it was just absurd. Yes, but that's funny. But she's just not that girl. Since when? And it just was like... Maybe she is. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know what? It shows me she has a sense of humor. You're right. I should be less... I just was confused by it. It was just so It was confusing, but it was also sort of funny. Are they that close? Yes, they're they're best buddies. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I... I just think it's it, it looks obsessive to show up with someone's face all over That's your dress. That's what's funny about it. Okay. I mean, it's like there's no more. Everyone has a stylist now. Everything's so planned out, so media trained. It's like, let's get a Bjork Swan back in the mix. I was just thinking that. Yes. I was just thinking it felt a bit like that. But when Bjork did it, it really wasn't meant to be like. Who made that swan? Was it a designer or is she just some weird Icelandic person? I think it was a designer. Okay. We'll have to get back to you on that. All right. You've got a few outstanding questions uh, to be answered next week. The internet and Google is my best friend. I'll back, we'll get back to you. So big news this week. Yeah. Uh, I know no one really comes to us for their political news, but <laughs> it is very exciting that uh, Raphael Warnock won the Georgia runoff Tuesday night. Thank it was gonna... goodness. Can we just breathe a huge sigh of relief? It was a huge sigh of relief, and it really sort of put in relief well, in relief, what a battleground state Georgia has become and what a shift it has been. I mean, for him to win twice in a row, it, it's sort of remarkable. And there's just going to be a shift in where we're watching and what we're tracking. And I think this was an interesting indicator of that uh, ahead of time. You know, they had a political, a Republican political strategist uh, who the Times interviewed. And she was like, you know, it's up to the soccer moms and the Peloton dads. And, you know, which was just to symbolize that the real um, tipping point now is going to be these white college educated suburban parents, basically. Like those are the people who you want to tip the scale towards Democrats. But I was kind of pissed because it was like, so the soccer moms are not exercising themselves. They're going to their kids soccer games. (laughs) But the Peloton dads get to work out alone at 6 a.m. before they have to go to work. It just felt very sort of. 1950s, but with a Peloton. Anymore. Well, I don't know. This woman, I had it all wrong. It made me very grumpy. I, w- I will say that I think Herschel Walker's concession speech, I was actually... I didn't was, hear it. Well, it was probably like the most sense he's ever made. Okay. <laughs> and I was glad he made it because, you know, being such a Trumper, you, you would think that he would just scream election. Yeah denial in a heartbeat but his concession he he, you know he conceded pretty quickly and you know with some you know pretty graciously you know given that he hasn't been particularly well hopefully we won't be hearing from him for a while no exactly yeah and i thought i thought the acceptance speech was that um raphael warnock's acceptance speech is really moving and he just talked about being from georgia and i know he, he was i am a georgian yeah. and it was very felt very powerful um, yeah some people were saying oh could you imagine him as as president i don't know i oh, couldn't imagine him as a candidate but um i felt like certain people were suggesting it online but anyway bravo to senator warnock and goodbye herschel yeah <laughs> um in just as urgent news, uh, I have been delighted. I feel like since the streaming generation, there's no, there's very rarely a collective TV moment. And White Lotus, oh I God. feel like, has really stepped into that moment. The internetification of this show yeah. has been so much fun. It's like this group sport to make memes of it, find the clues. These, uh, It's like a Hansel and Gretel story for 2022. Yeah, I mean, I 
I'm actually going to be on a plane when the uh, the last the last ah. episode. I know. I'm really. I'm really. I'm really gutted. Actually. Well, I, I mean, t- to be fair, I um have two children under three, so I usually go to bed before nine, <laughs> so, nine, so ten p.m. So I usually watch it on a Monday. But <laughs> so you and I can. How are you going to escape all the spoilers? Well, I don't go on the internet on Monday. Okay, that's not true. But I mean, I try to avoid spoilers. So <laughs> what's your theory? So, well, I shared my theory with the, like, Vogue, uh, Vogue.com Slack, and I was like, well, I think that it's, <laughs> you know, Tom Hollander, the gay villa owner, is actually in love with Jennifer Coolidge's husband, and that was the cowboy in the picture, and I was quickly shut down. I was like, yes, all of TikTok shares your theory. I was like, oh, I'm such a grandmother. <laughs> but a grandmother, uh, Miss Marple, if any grandmother. <laughs> well, you'll be pleased to know I did not know that theory, so that okay, you just enlightened you. me, and I'm quite impressed by that. I mean, didn't you say, Choma, that the the piece you guys did on are Portia's outfits oh, yeah. good or bad? People loved it. I mean, People there's really been... It. People what do we call it, it? Secondary content? The White Lotus? Uh... I mean, you know, Porsche's outfits. Yeah. I mean, they and they continue to be terrible. I think they continue. The to... piece was, so are Porsche's good. outfits good or I bad? so bad they're good in yeah. some people. Well, they just feel like it's really nailing a very specific 20-something Gen Z. It's very TikTok style. It's like every TikTok trend converged. <laughs> After the break, Paris. everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you. Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com slash membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in? Hey, run-through listeners. Are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a -a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, handpicked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. I'm standing on the Avenue Montaigne. It is one of the tonier shopping boulevards in Paris. And we are about to enter the new Jacquemus store. So, back to Paris and the Avenue Montaigne, where Jacquemus is opening his new store this evening. Across the street is Balenciaga, next door is Gucci. He's really uh, in the big leagues here, hitting, hitting high. And let me just, just putting on fixing my jacket. I walked here from my hotel, so I'm a little rumpled. Chloe, I know you're not rumpled. You're never rumpled. I was rumpled. Right, maybe. (laughs) But I know you want to look together for Simon. He's an amazing designer. I mean, he dresses the likes of Dua Lipa, Beyonce, Rihanna, so you're in good company. (laughs) 
I mean, he's also really an outlier. He takes his collections to the most fantastic places, like far from Paris, you know, to the lavender fields of Provence or Mm -hmm. beaches of Hawaii. His latest collection, which is featured in the new store, Le Papier, he showed it, if you can imagine, in the salt marshes of Provence. Mm. And it was all in shades of white and beige that matched the salt hills. It was très dramatique. And it was also a look we saw in his recent wedding too, right? Where his Mm. grandmother walked him down the aisle in one of those spectacular ivory dresses. There's actually a great story about it on Vogue.com. It was noon in Paris. So sorry, Choma, it was 6 a.m. for you. I mean, I was barely awake, but I came (laughs) dressed in my favorite bubblegum pink sweater, Giacomo sweater, via Zoom to chat with both of you. Bonjour. Bonjour. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm very cozy in my Jacquemus sweater. Oh, I see the, the, <laughs> the pink. Oh, this one is good. It's gotten me through. <laughs> That's a very good uh, lockdown sweater. Yeah, I wore uh, it so much. I think my <laughs> colleagues got tired of it. Oh, I see what you mean. Do you mean you sleep in the Jacquemus sweater? <laughs> I see. What a luxury. <laughs> Not quite. But Simon, we're in Simon's beautiful new store. They have their opening tonight and then it's fully opening tomorrow morning. And it looks so gorgeous. Were you very involved in designing this? And yeah, I every did. Detail? I, yeah, I did it. Like basically, I, I designed my showroom in that mood and then all beige. There's muslin curtains, sort of raw muslin curtains covering all the walls. And it's all many shades of from white to eggshell to sort of salted butter. And it's extremely calming, but also very precise. And all of the clothes hanging that I've seen are especially in the room that we're sitting in, are all white, and they're from the Papier collection. Right. Will you tell us a little bit about where that showed? This show in, um, in south of France, in a, in a salt desert, we created this uh, massive mo- salt mountain. It was really space-age, weird, like... Mad Max. Yeah, <laughs> like being on the moon, kind of. Yeah, I wanted something like super pure, for, for this collection, like all white, but something quite drama and poetic, so yeah. Even watching your shows from afar, they're so spectacular. I mean, you had Hawaii and you had Provence. I mean, you've really stepped away from the traditional calendar, but also from Paris, like, and it's really refreshing to see young designers break the rules. Yeah. Why, why did it feel right for you to do that? Because I, I haven't the option, you know, I, I want my brand to, to be seen back in the day. So when I did my first show in Paris, I used a swimming pool. Empty? And then, no, just around the swimming pool. Oh, okay. The swimming pool but, was full of water. But it Nobody was fell say, in, I hope. <laughs> yeah, no, no one. But it, it just also to say like, yeah, I want to do something different. I just don't want like a, a lookbook, model walking out of, of a lookbook that, that is not sexy, it's not fun. So I want to tell a story. What happens if there's bad weather? Well, it did rain on your wedding, and I have to say congratulations. It looked beautiful, and obviously you got married in your, in your hometown. Town. Yeah, t- tell me what you remember about that day. Wow, it was so special. It was so important to me to be back in my hometown. Like, makes so much sense because we visit so much place, like so much fancy place, I have to say, and I was like, no, it's not right. I want to be back in in the place where I grew up. And where, where is that? What is the village called? It's called Charleval. Mm-hmm. It's a very small town uh, in the south of France, an hour away from Marseille. And, and did you get married in the Marie or? Yeah, it was so beautiful. Like the whole village was there. Like 
everyone was like at the balcony watching us. Was weird at the same time. It was cute because I always was the the gay of my of my village. So coming back and being applauded by people, feeling only love was as a gay couple. Yeah, as a gay couple means so much. I know you said that your grandfather was worried that people might. Yeah. Throw tomatoes at you or not be welcoming. Oh, I didn't know. I, I say that, but yes, it's true because my grandfather couldn't sleep at night. I was like, "Are you okay?" He was like, "No, I'm afraid that people uh, send tomato on you." I was like, "It will not happen. Like, it's going to so be touching. fine. People uh, going to share love." And of course, I know we are a gay couple, but it's because we we famous that people also are that enthusiast but it helps at the end of the day you know yeah. it helps the the gay cause so yeah. a lot of small town weddings in France my husband and I also got married in a small town near where my father has a house or had a house and uh, the entire village becomes part of the wedding yeah. it's not just your your the, those people you invited it's everyone who lives there it's a whole village event but, whether you want it to be yeah, or exactly. not and it's such a thrill so Simon talking about people coming out. These are not the people he invited. These are everyone who lives there. These are the old yeah. men who maybe taught him in school. Yeah, just to see them, I was crying already. It was also the village, but you had some special guests. I mean, how did everyone in the village react to having like Dua Lipa be in your town? My I'm sure God. that's like the most celebrities that have ever been in your town in one. Country. Yeah, but I, of course, like my my town, like no one ever passed by. You know, like it's uh, <laughs> it's such a small town with like. Nothing really to do. Mm-hmm. I love it, huh? but they were crazy to see Dua. They were so cute. And Dua in very little clothing. Oh my god! I mean, it was for a, a traditional French village, which she, she was wearing a completely sheer dress yeah. with sort of a bikini underneath or sort of yeah, underwear. Yeah, it's a transparent like. A but it dress. was quite a look for a Provençal. Yeah, <laughs> but I love because. Um, she of course she asked me she was like oh do you like it? I was like yeah it's my favorite uh, dress for you what collection of was it from of this one this papier yeah this le papier collection so in a way it was sort of a second runway of of sorts <laughs> it was the second show of the house <laughs> that's so fun but what's the most fun about it i have to tell you it was a comment the next day oh my god the comments these are comments on yeah. instagram yeah oh, i don't understand why dua is wearing a, a wedding dress <laughs> The braid, the braid must be so uh, sad. And people commenting, it's a gay wedding. The dress was done by, by Simon himself. What are you saying? And then another good comment that I need to tell you. <laughs> I don't understand why the, the bride is so old. No, it's my grandmother, guys. Oh, amazing. Like, oh, she was my best dress. She was the best oh, dress. I love it. I draw this one. Yes. Your grandmother must have been so touched. My grandmother. <laughs> She's going to be like, yes, I could, I could be with We you. call this a May-December romance when it's a big age oh, yeah? difference. <laughs> oh, big age, yeah. <laughs> but she's 76, so bustier well, dress. Well, she looks fabulous. Like, Can you describe the dress a little bit that she it's wore? It's a bustier white dress, like super minimal with just... Sort a, of bubble. Yeah, a bubble, yeah. like, and like just a knot on the back, all in a, in a white like linen. And can you tell us a little bit about the inspirations for this upcoming collection? It's hard to say, like, this one is was a really, like, forever collection, all white, drama, poetry, about my wedding. I think the next one will be a tiny more fashion. Do you feel that whatever's happening in your personal life, it yeah, spills into always. this? Okay. I can't lie. So where do you spend the holidays? In South of France, in my, my house. At, with your grandmother, or? Uh, not, not all the time, but... Okay. <laughs> 
And a month before, a month before, I kill her or she kill me. <laughs> we we are like uh, so connected. Then yeah, would be not possible. <laughs> what's the dress code? Like, what's the dress code in the south of France? How do people do? People get dressed up, or is it more oh. casual? For Christmas, your, yeah. What's it but like for in Christmas? Your house? Yeah, yeah, in your house for Christmas. Oh my God, my family. No, they they try. <laughs> <laughs> they keep on trying every Christmas, but. Do you have traditions for like like there's always Christmas lunch or Christmas dinner or you you all take a walk? I always or... do a Christmas party, but we eat the same thing. We open the present the same hours like each year. So I say, okay, basta. <laughs> Uh, I can't live in this movie anymore. Let's have a big party. We drink, 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 and... Um... What's the cocktail of the party? Is there one drink that everyone's having? No, not really. Rosemary with alcohol. We love oh, rosemary. Oh, wow. Interesting. That sounds good. Yeah, it's a very Jacquemus cocktail, this one. I know you have a jam-packed day before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be- yeah, beautiful, but it's fun, huh? This, uh, this little... Uh... yeah. No, we're thrilled to uh, be able to do it with you here. And, and yeah. yeah, yes, to follow Chloe on her travels. It's been really fun. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, merci beaucoup, Simon. Merci à vous. Thank you, Vogue. And good luck with the with the opening tonight. Yeah, and, it's going to be so fun. It sounds Can't amazing. Wait. My grandmother is on the way, and she was like, "Can I wear the the dress from the wedding?" I was like, "No, you it's can. too soon. No, no, it's too soon, darling." I was like, "You wear it for uh, your anniversary next year, but one week after." Hello. No. Have a good day. You too. Ciao, ciao. Bye. I want to go to a holiday party with drink, drink, drink and rosemary with <laughs> alcohol. I'm sure his show in Paris is basically going to be a holiday party. His show in Paris is going to be the holiday party he just described. <laughs> basically. You likely know Chelsea Manning as the person responsible for one of the most high-profile document leaks in recent history. But she's also a new author and a fashion historian in her own right. We recently spoke to her from her apartment in Brooklyn. Yes, we loved hearing what she's been up to, from security consulting to DJing. DJing wearing cat ears, mind you. Uh, yes, that's Chelsea DJing this summer in Williamsburg. Oh, that's so cool. Back in 2017... Shortly after her release from prison, Annie Leibovitz shot her for Vogue. It was at Coney Island. There was howling, awful winds, which you can see in the photograph. Uh, and I was basically, the entire time I was being sandblasted by, uh, <laughs> by the New York coast. <laughs> oh, my God. I remember when you posted it on, on Instagram and then it was like, the caption was, you know, guess this is what freedom looks like. What was it like putting that image out in the world? And tell us a bit about that moment. So, you know, I was very new to Instagram. I had just been released from prison. And yeah, you know, the reaction seemed pretty positive and, and, and very good. And I recall that I think it was a few days or maybe a week later, some troll tried to attack me on Twitter. And uh, my response, I had this viral response on Twitter, which was basically it was like, you should have been shot for the crimes that you did. My response was, well, I got shot for Vogue instead. <laughs> Oh my God, amazing. And anyone who hasn't seen that gorgeous picture, that beautiful red, it was a normal Kamali swimsuit, I think, right? We just should go see it. I still have it. Yeah, it's such a great suit. She makes the best swimsuits, I have to say. I'm a big fan. (laughs) Everyone should go read about it on Vogue.com. It is. It's an iconic Yeah, it's iconic. (laughs) And see that image. It's an iconic image. 
Chelsea, I really enjoyed reading your book, readme.txt. Will you tell us a bit about it and when you started writing it and also where the title comes from? My initial manuscript was written while I was still in prison. Oh, wow. So I uh, had something like 200-odd pages of paper because I didn't have... I had to print out everything. I didn't have like a disc that I could put anything on. So it was a. But you were had access. You typed it on the computer. You weren't writing longhand. Right. You know, we had we had access to a computer. There was a, definitely an initial manuscript. It mostly comes from the fact that one of the parts of the process of the disclosures was me outlining sort of what the documents that were released were, at least from my opinion, to anyone that, who would receive them. Washington Post, New York Times. Eventually, it was WikiLeaks, but. You know, we went through this process of trying to figure out who would do that. So I didn't have an idea of who was going to receive this or or publish this at this time. But uh, this document basically just outlines, like, this is what 21st century asymmetric warfare is. This is a historical record of these things. And uh, that is the uh, genesis of the book title. I mean, I have to say, for me, the parts of the book that were just the most gripping and visceral were the segments in prison. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us, obviously you've dedicated several chapters to this, but can you just explain a little bit to people what being in solitary confinement does to a person mentally and physically? Everything is 10 times more vivid, right? Your senses just become, you become Mm -hmm. hyper aware of everything, you know? So a, a door slam in another part of the building, footsteps, footfall. Interesting. You know, you can recognize people based on footfall. Like you can tell what person, uh, you know, the mood of a person is based on their footfall in the distance. You know, the drips from the pipes in the walls. Everything becomes, because you have so little stimuli to experience, your mind focuses and hyper-focuses on that. And then after Quantico, you are moved to being in, I guess it's not, is it general population in a military yeah. prison? Do you call it the same thing? Yeah. So general population is everybody. Yeah. yeah. Ominous, ominous, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but despite identifying as a woman, you were moved into a men's military prison. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the unique challenges that you faced because of that situation, that scenario? Well, the biggest challenge that I had was access to care. The military... And even, you know, my own lawyers from trial sort of uh, were very skeptical of the idea that the military would, you know, provide access to care. You know, the basics of, of transitioning, male to female transitioning. Yeah, so access to care became my priority because when we get a long sentence, like, you know, I, I was given a 35-year sentence, the way that my mind was sort of working for survival mode was like, I need to improve my quality of life, right? You know, like, it's not about getting out of prison. It's about improving quality of life. You know, how can I make this life that I have left as livable and as survivable as possible. And uh, access to care was very important. So I worked with the American Civil Liberties Union to legally pressure the government uh, and the military and the prison to provide me with access to care. And we succeeded in part. It was a, a lengthy process, but in February 2015, I got access to hormones. And in late 2016, we had at least uh, the acknowledgement that access to bottom surgery would be provided. I'm curious to know, did you set a precedent at the time? And have, have There's actually a long history of this. This really started in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. It was a part of a long tradition of this, that the sort of using the courts to pressure prisons to do the right thing. And it came on the heels of that. I was really struck by a lot of the very specific 
moments in prison that you described. And there was one scene you talk about in the barbershop about sort of the empathy of fellow prisoners that I would love if you could talk to us a little bit about. The barbershop was, even though it was inmates being barbers for other inmates, um, they they needed certification um, in the state of Kansas, which required them to do all kinds of beautician type work as well. So sure. eyebrows and things like that. So they would use me as best as they could to practice, you know, uh, different oh, various things that. on. It made the blow a little less. <laughs> I still didn't like it, but this wasn't like somebody coming along and just going, burr, 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 you know. I found that very touching. Did you become a student of fashion in prison? I've been a student of fashion for a very long time. <laughs> One of the interesting things I think is uh, exceptionally interesting is fashion history. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the current trends, but one of the things that I've had a long, this goes even before I was in the military, is this interest that I have in how tailoring and how there's been changes in tailoring methods, there's been changes in the fabrics, the kinds of designs, uh, the kinds of patterns, the kinds of you know uh, cuts for different clothing over, over the period of time, how much the Second World War altered uh, the fashion landscape, yeah. how much uh, you know uh, rationing of various materials shaped it. What excites you about fashion now? I am extremely fascinated by the the sort of post-pandemic suits that oh, we've been seeing okay. where tailors, there are an increasing number of tailor houses that are doing custom or bespoke suits, fitted suits, you know, which is traditionally a, a male thing. You, sure. you, if you're a woman, you'd get your suit off the rack at Zara, right? Uh, yeah. That's Or at Ann Taylor. But um, now there are an increasing number of uh, of houses, uh, you know, like your Savile Row type houses that accommodate women. I want a bespoke suit. Do you have a bespoke suit? I do. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't have it uh, in my possession yet. Did you go pinstripe? What did you order? Tweed. It's basically a three-piece uh, suit that uh, I've added pockets to and, you know, various uh, other features uh, in it that, you know, will essentially be my daily driver for doing business, especially in Europe. Amazing. That's amazing. I love that. Chelsea, I'm curious about your DJing that you're up to. How did you get into that? So, yeah, so I started DJing in the early 2000s. Before you enlisted? Before I was even out of secondary school. Oh, wow. Oh, I wow. wasn't even out of secondary school then. So I uh, did, in fact, try to become a professional DJ in the uh, mid-2000s in the in the U.S. And uh, I obviously did not succeed. I, I am not Calvin Harris. I've been trying to start DJing again, mostly for fun. Right. You know, just because I really appreciate music. I live in Brooklyn, so obviously many of my friends are are electronic musicians. And that's what I've been doing to try to have a little fun, a little pizzazz to my life. I love that. And what do you wear for DJing? I have been wearing uh, a suit where I just wear the trousers and the vest or waistcoat. Or in the alternative, I will wear some vintage pants that are sort of leathery in nature. I'm, I think that they're vintage leather. And uh, uh, I wear that with a mesh top. And my favorite feature is I wear it with um, these LED, very colorful going into different patterns, cat ears. Amazing. Amazing. Can you just tell us a little bit more about dedicating the book to trans kids? I've, I found that quite moving. Well, I was a trans kid once. Right. So that's my main audience for this book. In my mind, whenever I was writing it was, you know, and, and this is the kind of role model that I try to be And today is, is I just try to be the person that, as close to the person that I kind of needed whenever I was a teenager. Right. It's just a, a little acknowledgement that, hey, I see you, I hear you. 
I know you're there. You are loved and you are cared about enough for me to dedicate this book to you. It's been such a pleasure and congratulations on your new book. Thank you. And, and good luck behind the decks. And honestly, we'll be watching. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The Run Through with Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. If you want to reach out to us, send us a note to therunthrough at vogue.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chloe Mal. And I'm Cho Minardi. And we'll be back next week. Ciao.